0: Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast. Each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, social work, urban studies, public policy, and management. On this episode, we'll speak to civil rights icon, former mayor of Atlanta, and former ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young. To celebrate his decades-long career in public service, the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University was named in his honor in 1999. Today, Ambassador Young serves as CEO of the Andrew J. Young Foundation and as an advisor to the Andrew Young School. He continues to advocate for economic and social justice as well as human rights around the world. Ambassador Young, you've had an incredible impact on the city of Atlanta and the world at large. And a lot of people come to the Andrew Young School with a vision of how they want to change the world. How would you
1: advise them? What would you tell them? Forget it. <laughs> and I'm serious. I have a concept of leadership that's different from almost everybody else's. And for me, it distinguishes between political economic and spiritual or cultural leadership and i think that uh, you have certain goals in financial leadership and you can plan that out political leadership you might have your your pathway to to power but culture's change spiritually and they usually come out of a conflict or out of a spiritual and emotional crisis. But you can't plan it. Uh, And so, frankly, what I have done since the day I finished college, because I wasn't such a good student in college, I take that back. I was a very good student in college. My teachers just didn't think so. (laughs) Because I didn't see things the way they wanted me to see them it turned out that that was good to illustrate it i i had a a, a soci, sociology professor who had a phd from the uh and another one from university of chicago and um it was social disorganization and we got into a thing about juvenile delinquency well it that was the 1940s and so everybody had some kind of scientific analysis of juvenile delinquency and, and social uh, conflict. But it was not true to my experience growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana. In fact, I, I got in real trouble because, it, you know, Dr. uh that does not make sense to me. That's not the way it happened in New Orleans, Louisiana and half of my class um, went to the military a fourth of them went to college and a fourth of them went to jail and it had nothing to do with their character and personality which went where it was there was nothing really wrong with them except that i was born to a privileged family so i was automatic that i was going to college people who were much smarter than me ended up going to the military or even going to jail. And um, I didn't buy her analysis of our social problems. So I probably got a D. (laughs) You know, but that didn't bother me. But it meant that I gradually eked out of undergraduate school. But on the way back home, I was confused, lost. I was just 19. And uh, I got a degree, and I knew I didn't know anything. But I ran to the top of a mountain, thinking I was running for exercise. I was really running out of frustration, running out of my frustrations. And suddenly, when I got there, I could hardly breathe. But it was like I opened my eyes for the first time. And I saw the world different from the top of the mountain than I'd seen it from the bottom of the mountain. And what I saw was, I saw everything in sight had a purpose. The clouds, the trees, the cornfields, the sunflower fields. I mean, everything was there for some purpose. Cows had a purpose. And it suddenly hit me. Everything created in this universe can't have a purpose except me. (laughs) So if everything's got a purpose, I must have one too. I didn't know what it was. I didn't care. But from then on, I said, I'm just going to do the best I can do one day at a time. And whatever happens is fine with me. And that's the way I've lived my life since that moment. Nothing was planned. uh, And yet everything happened like... There was some maybe divine order, but I don't lay claim to that. Uh, But I say that I was trying to get people to uh, be a part of the civil rights movement and register voters. And lo and behold, I end up with an office across the hall from Martin Luther King. Now, interestingly enough, he was trying not to be a leader <laughs> i mean he, he left atlanta and went and deliberately chose chose first montgomery alabama because montgomery was the most conservative town in the south in many ways and the church that he was pastoring uh was mostly um college professors and um They were amongst the elite black bourgeoisie, and they were people of order and stature, not people that he thought would want to be politically or socially too aggressive. And, And they did. It was just that there was this one sweet little lady that everybody loved, and they mistreated her on a bus one day, and they had to respond. And he got thrown into the leadership of it. But a week before it happened, nobody knew it was going to happen. In fact, the day it happened, when Rosa Parks left home, she had no intention of stirring up the nation (laughs) for a year. And so everything that's happened in my life, I ended up working with them because the office they gave me was across the hall from Martin Luther King's. And my wife was back in Alabama with our new baby. And Dr. King's secretary asked me would I help answer his mail? And as a result of answering the mail, I ended up being uh, executive director of the organization. But the same thing happened to him. He was at the meeting about Rosa Parks, but he was not even sitting in the meeting. He was in the back of the church, running the mimeograph machine when you had to crank it out one at a time. And he was making the handbills for the bus boycott and not thinking about leading anything. But the two senior pastors didn't get along very well, and they got in an argument. And so this educated group of of people said, wait a minute, let's start over with this young fellow. And so he had really less than an hour to prepare the speech to define a national movement that lasted for 381 days. But when he woke up that morning, I don't think he had a clue, uh, but he had just finished his doctoral dissertation, and he two weeks before, he'd mailed it in to Boston University and thought it was time for him to relax and begin to spend a little more time on his sermons. And history had another Uh, direction for him and that's the way i think that's the way cultural change that's the way spiritual change that's the way real movements start they start out of some tragedy or conflict and so the point of the public policy school is to give you a variety of options and ideas and thoughts uh, and plans as to what to do if you're met with such a crisis. Now, it probably is not what you're going to be taught, but in the process of studying at an institution like Georgia State in the public policy school, you learn how to think and how to analyze, and you put your own instincts into the situation and your mind if it's well prepared and if you have the wisdom and courage of your convictions you will do something that's different and every now and then one of the different decisions that we make becomes a history making decision but i don't think anybody starts out i wouldn't trust anybody that started out to say, I'm going to make history. To me, that's a nut. (laughs) It's an ego. You know, I mean, it's an ego looking for self-promotion. And I'm always suspicious of people who want to change the world. Why? What right have you to want to change? But when the world demands change, then... We want a cadre of sound thinkers uh, to guide that change. And that's why I love the public policy school at Georgia State University.
0: So that was kind of the direction I was heading was you talked about, you know, you just happened to get this office across the hall from Dr. King. And that really changed both of your lives. Yeah. And I'm wondering... Does making a place like the Andrew Young School, a place where people can have an office across the hall from a like-minded person, does that at least start to push us in that direction where we're gathering like-minded
1: people? No, I I think that's the purpose of of, of the institution. Before I came to Dr. King's school, I mean, to to cross the hall from Martin Luther King, I actually went into a theological seminary. because i wanted to know well my father wanted me to be a dentist uh and a baseball player and i don't play baseball play everything else a little bit uh but i i i didn't want to be in a career that kept me in an office and i began to question what is the purpose of life and i was asked to volunteer with the National Council of Churches for six months uh, right after graduation, and I thought this would be a good chance for me to do some volunteer work and uh, get some different experiences. Uh, They sent me, when I got to Connecticut, which is where I was assigned, they didn't have a place for me to live, and so they called the seminary and said, do you have an extra room? And they let me stay in the guest room for six months. And since I was there, I walked over to the dean's office and I said, "Uh, look, I don't know a lot about the Bible and I'm working with the church. Is it possible for me to sit in on a couple of classes? And his answer was, well, if you can sit in on three, uh, I can give you a scholarship. So to me, that's what was meant to be now i ended up in a school which was georgia state in miniature uh, we only had about 300 400 students but we probably had 100 different nationalities on that campus georgia state's got 52000 students but we probably have 185 90 different nationalities uh and cultures we have the whole world coming together in what I think to be one of the most progressive cities, one of the most enlightened cities, one of the most courageous cities. This is a blessed city in some ways. And how in the midst of segregation, the business community would decide that they were going to be a city too busy to hate? Well, that's a morally sound decision but it also happened to be very good business. And branding the city that way as a city that was not going to discriminate uh, has made it possible for us to grow in a wide variety of directions.
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad that you went there because one of the other questions I wanted to talk to you about is, what do you think the role of our governments and our policymakers is in that? Clearly, the business community has a huge role in
1: this and the activist community has a huge role, but
0: where does policy fit in?
1: Well, a democracy requires constant arguing. (laughs) I'm reading, uh, I I glanced at it some years ago, but I'm reading a book about John Adams, and um, the process by which uh, the founding fathers uh, came to the Declaration of Independence was... One of constant arguing, and they were able to discuss uh, things, though none of them had a great deal in common. They began to be strengthened by the differences of their opinions and by the differences of their upbringing. And um, they defined government as an institution to organize disagreements. (laughs) <laughs> uh you can't just blow up. But when you have a a House of Representatives or a city council uh or a neighborhood planning unit, uh government provides us a structure to have an organized disciplined dis- discussion about anything. And we particularly like the idea of public private partnerships so that government is acting in concert with the business community and they're different factors one is motivated by profits and productivity the other supposedly motivated by values and the stronger and more independent each of them are, the better it works. It in, it interferes with business if government has too much to say about their business decisions. But it also interferes with government if business wants to structure everybody's life in order for them to make money. There, there's got to be the... Uh, diversity of institutions. Now we have to add to that, and we had we do, the nonprofit. What are the values, the civil society elements that define issues not so that they make money, or not so that they give power, but that they define and determine to the best of their ability what are the values what is the vision what is the uh the dream that we can all come together and work on and uh, you'll find that uh that that's that's not just something that you study and i've tried to push that at georgia state i had a class that i organized <laughs> uh because I had a a friend who was, this was 1952, three. He had been a lieutenant in the Japanese Air Force. Well, we were just a few years away from war with the Japanese. We had uh, a South African anthropologist, a black South African who had studied anthropology, but who had lived most of his life under the system of apartheid. Um, my roommate was a white southern baptist from north carolina and i was a black congregationalist from louisiana (laughs) and um, we had two europeans one from switzerland uh, and one from england and um, we'd get together and argue and finally we asked one of the teachers asked to sit in with us. And um, we scheduled it for three hours on Fridays. And we had no curriculum, no preordained agenda, but whatever was on somebody's mind when we came to class that day, that's what we talked about. And pretty soon, two other professors wanted to join in with us. And one of them was uh, a German anthropologist, a very uh, left-wing anti-fascist, very militant little guy. The other was uh, a very distinguished New England philosophy professor who was young and very visionary and creative. Uh, And the third was a Methodist who had a doctorate in theology from Yale Divinity School. And so when that group would get together, we we, we could have almost written, uh, you know, the song, We Are the World. (laughs) Because whatever anybody said, you had an opinion from Asia, you had an opinion from Europe, you had a Southern opinion, you had a Northern opinion, you had... But we spent three hours once a week, just talking to each other. And to me, that's the ideal educational model. Then at the end of the class, the p- three professors would say, well, based on today's discussion, I think you ought to read, and they'd list a book that they thought would contribute another historic perspective uh, to this um, this dialogue. And uh, to me that that's been my ideal educational experience. It's why I like to get together with the students uh, up there on the sixth floor and we usually have an agenda, but I'd like to get there sometimes with no agenda and um, have a cup of coffee and let it rip. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you talk about these different
0: sectors working together almost in concert. To kind of push us towards this collective dream, because you 've had a varied career and you 've worked in multiple sectors in government in nonprofits in all sorts of different organizations, do you find that you're using the same kinds of skills and the same thought process in each of those stages of your career, or does the approach change?
1: No, I think that um, i 've always felt somewhat fearful of money and you know i i grew up in sunday school where the love of money was the root of all evil but uh that was where i started out because i didn't want, i was very idealistic then when i got into politics uh, i realized that politics is really simply dividing up what exists so that it can be distributed fairly But politics doesn't often generate new ideas and new wealth. There was a book I picked up, Cities and the Wealth of Nations by Jane Jacobs. And it talked about how cities create wealth because they have problems. Uh, The illustration I remember was Japan had run out of steel because of the war effort and they needed some way to make bicycles. And so they ended up creating an alloy of steel and ceramics that ended up to be stronger than steel and lighter than ceramics. (laughs) Well, they did it to make bicycle tubing, to create new bicycles. Uh, But then they continued to work on it, and when they decided to use the same alloy as an automobile engine, they created a more powerful engine that was just half the weight of the engines that we were making here in the U.S. with steel. And so they took about 30% of the automobile market just on the basis of having lighter weight vehicles that got more miles to the gallon. Uh, And that just happened to coincide with a time when women were working more and coming out of the home and they had more to say about what kind of car they bought. All of this came out of the crisis, the shortage of steel. And so I began to see business as a flexible, innovative, and creative way to solve problems now the advantage of business over government and why business always wins is that uh, two or three people can get together in a garage and they can tinker with something and they can make it happen and before long uh you've got bill gates or you've got uh, apple and you've got new companies that that formed with a few people's ideas. You can't do that with politics. Politics requires majority. And most politics, you almost have to have a 60% agreement before you can make change. But in business, two or three people can get a crazy idea and they can take the risk of their own time, their own money. And if they hit it, they become millionaires, or billionaires. Now that sounds simple, but it really is quite complex. And the average person, whether it's Henry Ford developing automobiles, or Bill Gates and Microsoft. Bill Gates started when he was about 12 years old, and he had access to some advanced kind of business machines. And uh, and that's the games he played. Uh, and I don't know, everybody thought that uh, Steve Jobs was kind of crazy because he couldn't get along with people uh, because he had to have it his way. And he was a strong and obnoxious personality, so it seems. Uh, but they fired him from Apple and then had to bring him back because crazy as he was, he was a genius. (laughs) And so by the time I became mayor of Atlanta, I realized that you couldn't let government work by itself, that you needed business. And I listened to what business leaders had to say, but I also realized that it was important to be sensitive to the churches uh, and the aspects of civil society, the Rotary Club, and places where people were thinking of the common good and not necessarily power or money. Uh, And it's the balancing of that society, pushing forward the right thing at the right time uh, that makes for a successful city.
0: And so looking to the future as we move into this new digital landscape where all aspects of our society, government, business, nonprofit, even just our everyday lives, are so impacted by technologies that are in large part made and controlled by corporations, what is the role of policy? How do we maintain that give-and-take relationship?
1: Well, I don't know that uh, any ideas are controlled by anybody. That's the advantage of a free society that we have. I think Bill Gates actually got fired from IBM (laughs) because IBM was talking about hardware and they didn't have a clue about software. And he started thinking about software. And it ended up for almost 25 or 30 years, he made 100 times as much money on software as i the international business machine company uh made on hardware now hardware started catching up with things like the cloud uh and um and ibm is doing quite well watson uh which uh, is the name they call the computer the name of the founder of ibm and um it's it's what makes life exciting. See? And no matter what you're in, you ought to always be looking to the future and how can we do this better. Now, in order to do that, it helps to understand the past and so that you don't make the same mistakes that were made. Say, right now, I'm thinking of Germany in the 30s. Well, Germany in the whole first part of the 20th century, for, we had two world wars because of German thinking uh, was askew and wasn't balanced by values, but their business was strong and, well, let me not get into evaluating that. But I, I, I was on the way to doing that because I think that's a danger for our country now, that... Um, wanting a simple answer that solves a problem for the people in power and not understanding how important it is for everybody else, which brings us to another important part of uh, the public policy school, that is taxes. Our former Dean Roy Ball and uh, President Dean Sally Wallace understand how to create a tax regime that allows everybody to contribute to the common good, but it doesn't take too much from any one group and it doesn't, uh, it it keeps the society balanced. And that's what good taxes do. Uh, We should pay because we can do most things cheaper and more efficiently if we put it together. You could go and educate your children, but we believe in public schools because we think it doesn't help my children if they're the only educated kids in the neighborhood. It might just get them killed. So it's cheaper to educate everybody's kids uh, and employ everybody's family and give everybody a stake in a society. That's what democracy is all about spreading it out so that everybody has a fair share and a fair opportunity to develop whatever abilities they have and when one group gets too much and another group gets too little uh, it strains the society in lots of ways the most prominent way is with wars Uh, wars usually come when one country thinks it needs to tell another country how to run their business which would say to me that um the city of atlanta has had an added dimension uh to policy and i don't know what we'd call it but um we labeled ourselves uh after the phoenix because we were destroyed by sherman and the phoenix rising from the ashes became the rallying point of the city coming back. And then when everybody else was pulling apart racially, uh, we decided we were going to be a city too busy hate to hate and work together. And back in the 70s, it, we had a little period when, almost like it is now, where uh It was America first, and we didn't want to take much response. Well, that was between the First and Second World wars. But because America would not take a leadership role after the First World War, we ended up in the Second World War with 66 million people killed. I mean, we almost destroyed the earth um, because... We didn't want to get involved with Europe in maintaining global peace. But Franklin Roosevelt understood that mistake. And so when we left the Second World War, we left the Second World War and we put together an infrastructure which included the World Bank uh, that helped people have a common understanding of money and wealth, Uh, the United Nations, which meant we could talk about things that were different and, and work out our opinions verbally rather than with military might. The International Monetary Fund, which created uh, values of currency so that we could be fair in our trade together. And then we created a a, a whole a network of trade agreements where we sat down and we worked out what's fair between one country and another. And as long as America was giving that kind of leadership to the world, we did pretty good. But then something happened and we didn't continue. We got involved in Vietnam. We got involved in the Middle East. We got involved in with Korea, North Korea. And if you look at all of those it came out of our ignorance we didn't know anything about vietnam and yet we wanted to tell them how to run their business Uh, in iran they had a democratic government elected in the 1954 52 somewhere uh, with Mossadegh, and um we overthrew that government to get control of the oil, and that was in 1954 is fifty years later, seventy years later. Uh, and uh, we still have not gotten relationships right with Iran. And uh, we've been up and down with Russia, but Sunday at President Carter's Sunday school class. He said something that was very profound. And he said, everybody is worried about China, but China is winning because they are not spending money on war. And that the United States deficit, which now is approaching $3 trillion, is a debt burden that many generations Uh, we'll have to deal with. On the other hand, China has not been at war with anybody since 1979. They're about $3 trillion ahead of us. We're $3 trillion in debt. They're $3 trillion ahead. Only because they didn't go to war. And we haven't had enough discussion of the cost of war and the price of peace. And I think with the Nobel Peace Prize winners coming to Atlanta the next year in December, I think it would be very appropriate for the public policy school to lead a discussion on world peace and progress. Now, just so we're not leaving it out, we've got to have health care because disease doesn't respect geography. And with airplanes going back and forth, sickness anywhere is a threat to sickness everywhere. And so we've got to have some regime to stay healthy, uh, to keep our environment uh, habitable. It's 100 degrees outside today. This is too hot even for Georgia. If it remains at that level uh, too long, we're gonna have ice melting and seas rising and uh, the flooding of the rivers and the damaging of the crops. And there's a certain climate balance that's sort of necessary for us to live. And um, just because we don't believe it and don't want to understand it doesn't mean it's going to go away. It's me- It means it's going to have an even greater impact on our lives uh, the longer we wait.
0: Well, thank you, Ambassador, for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. For more information about Ambassador Andrew Young, visit andrewyoung.org. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced and edited by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Girotano and Victoria Jesse. Additional production assistance on this episode from Amanda Pouché. Our executive producer is Avani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice. And We'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies.